And for all those who say the benefits of eating healthy and working out should be a reward in and of itself, crap. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Last week, we chatted with Dan Walters, the head coach and founder of the running team, DW Running. And as you heard, Dan provides counsel on not just running, but serves as a great sounding board when it comes to a variety of life's hurdles. Speaking of hurdles, I think we can all agree that regular exercise or physical movement is beneficial to one's overall health. However, it isn't always easy to start an exercise routine. Let's go over some of the tangible benefits of regular exercise. Number one, it reduces death. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get more black and white than this. If you want to live longer, you need to exercise longer. According to one study, the highest reduction in early death was in people who reported 150 to 300 minutes a week of vigorous physical activity or 300 to 600 minutes of moderate physical activity or some equivalent mix of the two. It also increases strength and bone density. I think, as we all know, as we age, our bone density decreases, making us susceptible to bone fractures and other debilitating injuries. My mom, for example, can't even go for a walk outside without risking a broken wrist, which is exactly what happened the last time she went on a brisk winter jaunt with a couple of her girlfriends. Luckily, regular exercise has been proven to strengthen your bones as well as increase your muscle mass, thus reducing your risk of injury. Regular exercise also reduces the risk of dementia. Several large studies have suggested that regular exercise now can reduce your risk of dementia later by up to 30%. In one particular study, it was determined that of the five behaviors that were assessed, regular exercise, not smoking, moderate alcohol intake, healthy body weight, and healthy diet, all of these things pretty good, exercise had the greatest effect in terms of reducing dementia risk. This is something I didn't know. It also reduces susceptibility to mental health issues. So we've all heard that exercise makes you feel better, which I always assumed is another way of saying, well, I can now be proud of myself for exercising. And while there are some massive benefits to this daily boost of confidence, science demonstrates that exercise's benefits to mental health are even more tangible. Physical activity releases endorphins and other feel-good brain chemicals that enhance your sense of well-being. Exercise also causes your body to pump more blood to the brain, facilitating clearer and more focused cognition. Finally, there's nothing like a workout or a run to get your mind off of invasive or obsessive thinking, the type of thing that can land you squarely in chronic anxiety, a big culprit of, well, premature death. This week, in place of an Ask Joanne, I'm going to tackle one of the most frequent questions I receive about my own fitness transformation, how I stay motivated to continue working out or running day in and day out. I actually like this question a lot because it doesn't assume that working out comes easy to me. It doesn't. Although I don't hate physical movement as much as I used to, I'm not ashamed to admit that, yes, I prefer taking a cab to walking just about anywhere. 
I adore those mornings when I can simply roll out of bed and head to a leisurely breakfast without having to clock in my mileage for the day. And no, I don't enjoy hit classes or Peloton or even a jog with my running team. These are not fun activities to me. They are more akin to the chores my mother assigned to my brother and me each Saturday morning. Mine was to empty all the trash bins around the house. And guess what? It was the first thing I did after brushing my teeth so I could get it over with as early as possible. One of the things I like to do is instead of thinking of how to stay motivated, it's far less intimidating to ask yourself, well, how do I develop a habit? So today, we're going to get a little bit nerdy, a little bit more sciencey than we already have to discuss just how we can make working out as mindless as eating a bowl of popcorn. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Think of one of your habits. It can be totally unrelated to working out, and it doesn't even have to be a good habit. It can be a neutral habit, or even a bad habit. I can predict one of them for most of you. You brush your teeth every morning. Now, how much motivation, like real motivation, do you need to brush your teeth each morning? I'm guessing not a lot. While it's true that, yes, the act of brushing one's teeth requires far less effort, time, or even money than 45 minutes of moderate to intense cardio a day, do not underestimate the power of habit formation. A very snackable study in 2011 demonstrates the power of habits. Researchers divided a group of moviegoers into two separate groups, those that would receive freshly popped popcorn and those that would receive week-old stale popcorn. Across the board, after the test was administered, all study participants indicated that, yes, the fresh popcorn tasted superior to the stale popcorn. Not surprisingly, people who didn't normally eat popcorn at the movies ate far more of it when it was fresh than when it was stale. However, what was truly interesting was that those who routinely got popcorn at the movies ate most of the popcorn regardless of whether it was fresh or stale. In other words, the habit of eating popcorn at the movie theater overrode an otherwise understandable impulse to pass on a bucket of pretty crappy popcorn. To the habitual popcorn eaters, the act of bringing popcorn, stale or fresh, to their mouths was mindless. So with this preamble in mind, the following are the secrets to developing a fitness habit, many of which can be deployed beyond the fitness context so that you won't need to drum up a mountain of motivation every single day of your foreseeable future. Sometimes, yes, you will need that motivation. But for me, most days, I put about as much thought into going for a run as I do brushing my teeth. Now, habits are a function of the following. So we're getting a little mathematical here. Cue plus response plus reward. Now let's discuss each of these in turn. First, the response. This part of habit development involves identifying the desired behavior, which will hopefully be your response to the cue, which we're going to discuss next. 
Because habit formation requires repetition, studies have shown that the complexity of the desired behavior can have an enormous impact on how quickly and strongly a habit is formed. Thus, pick something doable. This is the kind of advice that I actually hate hearing. Pick something you enjoy doing. I don't enjoy the elliptical, running, cycling, hiking, lifting, boxing, or the Zumba class with my mom. All of the things that I tried in my attempt to pick something I enjoy. Chances are, if you actually enjoyed doing any of these things as much as you enjoy watching Netflix, you wouldn't have a problem staying motivated. Thus, instead of looking for something you enjoy, my advice is find something you can physically do and don't hate with every cell in your body. This is the mental cost of your commitment and keeping it low is the first step towards staying motivated. Second, the mental cost, however, isn't the only cost you should consider. Your total costs should include a consideration of your financial costs, e.g. an activity that doesn't require a gym or membership or expensive equipment. should also take into consideration the physical costs. For example, heavy lifting or HIIT workouts can mean that you are sore many days of the week and logistical costs. For example, the inflexibility of a scheduled aerobics class might make it a little bit harder for you to shuttle the kids to and from dance class and field hockey practice. That can be a bit of a nightmare for some people. For me, that's why I chose running. It's cheap. It makes me far less susceptible to injury, especially if I run at a comfortable pace most of the time, and I can run when I want to instead of always following a set schedule. Another thing to consider when you're developing the desired behavior. I like to get my exercise in first thing in the morning. Unless you're a diehard, semi-professional, sub-elite athlete who has decades of running or working out under your belt, like my husband Anthony or my former work partner Jeff, both of whom have been running for half their lives, it's best to get your workout done in the morning. Not only will this give you far less time to negotiate your way out of your commitment for the day, you guys know what I mean, you also get to enjoy the confidence boost of having worked out for far longer. Even if working out first thing isn't always feasible, for example, as a woman, I was unable to run alone until there was sunlight and a fair number of people already on the running path, at least attempt to get that workout in before lunchtime. Negotiate with yourself. This past week, I was on vacation in Italy. Taken outside of my comfort zone, getting my runs in grew far more onerous. I thought it was just me, but then Anthony admitted to feeling the same sort of uncharacteristic inertia. Instead of bullying myself into getting on that treadmill or hitting the cobblestones, I wheedled with myself a little. You don't need to run all five miles on your spreadsheet. Just run two miles today. That's all I'm asking of you. If you can run more, great. If not, great. For you, that might look a little bit more like just walk for 10 minutes or just make it through the third interval or just do the first 15 minutes of the yoga video. Sometimes the finish line is unrealistically far away, but what you don't want to do is get in the habit of quitting the race altogether. Just move the finish line a little closer. Most of the time though, you'll find that the finish line was just where it needed to be. 
By the time I hit mile two, my mind was far more amenable to finishing all five miles, and now I've built some mental muscle to get over that hump the next time. The second part of the habit formation formula, the Q. In order to make the desired behavior or response as mindless as possible, it's imperative that the mind receive cues that essentially flip the switch to on so you don't have to do it yourself. Planning out these contextual cues for yourself is proven to facilitate faster and stronger habit formation. Studies have shown that habits are far likelier to form if the desired behavior occurs in a stable context, i.e., the same context. For example, in that popcorn study, both groups ate far less popcorn if they were outside of a movie theater or required to use their non-dominant hands to feed themselves. Another thing to consider in terms of contextual cues, timing matters. The week before your big trip to Hawaii isn't the ideal time to start your fitness routine. Rather, wait until you have a long stretch of uninterrupted time where your morning looks pretty identical to the one before it. Think of your own morning routine and identify a handful of things that already exist that can be your body's cue to get moving. Create a plan for your cues. Take control of those contextual cues that you can actually create. They don't need to be complicated. In fact, the simpler, the better. I wear the same kind of running shorts, sports bra, gym socks, and running shoes almost every single day. I change up my running shorts for my Friday long runs to accommodate nutrition. I fold them up into a nice little bundle and plop that bundle on my bedside table before going to sleep at night. I have the same coffee routine when I get up and without fail, I make sure to finish the wordle with Anthony before hitting the toilet one final time and heading out. Calendar your workouts. That is another powerful cue. I spent 18 years of my career as a lawyer scheduling my days through my calendar. When I started my marathon training and some of my runs started taking two hours or longer, I began putting my runs in my calendar so that my assistant could see that the time was blocked out. Now, I'm no longer a lawyer, as you guys know, but I kept this habit because it was such a powerful cue for me to treat my workout or run with the same level of respect as I did a client meeting or conference call. Now, what about when cues go wrong? What about when they're out of your control? What if they disappear through no fault of your own? Remember, the name of the game is to try and make your desired behavior or response as mindless as eating a bowl of popcorn. If you have to flap around the house thinking about, what do I do now? Well, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Thus, have a protocol in place for the usual suspects. Bad weather, unexpected travel, Illness and injury, or the I hate everything in my life right now days. I just had one of those. Despite the promise of sunshine all year long, Southern California has experienced so much rain and even snow this past year that Anthony has joked about asking for a partial refund on our lease. Thus, on some mornings, it just didn't make sense to hit the road. Now, I didn't have to think twice about it, though. I either went to the gym and treadmilled it, or I switched from a run to a HIIT workout at home. Find a workout partner who is at your level. Studies have shown 
time and again that making healthier habits with someone is far more effective than trying to go at it alone. Your workout partner will be your walking, talking cue, the one who helps flip that switch when it becomes too heavy to do on your own. Interestingly, though, Studies have shown that people who have already mastered the desired habit may have far less of an impact on those aspiring to adopt the same habits than those who are similarly seeking to make a change. In other words, partnering with someone who already runs six times a week if you're just starting out isn't going to have nearly the same reinforcement effect as working out with someone who is just like you starting out. When I started running with DW Running, I saw the biggest growth in my performance when my coach, Dan, put me in a group with runners who ran basically at my level. They challenged me, yes, but not so much that they made me feel like I could never catch up to them. The third part of the habit formula, the reward. Obviously, the best part of the habit formula. Now, it should come as no surprise that positive reinforcement is a powerful tool when it comes to changing any kind of behavior. And for all those who say, the benefits of eating healthy and working out should be a reward in and of itself, crap. If our minds truly believe this, then none of us would be in this motivational abyss to begin with. And science bears this out. Studies have shown that the innate benefits of a desired behavior are far less potent than pleasurable and immediate rewards when it comes to habit formation. Now, when we're talking about rewards for habit formation, remember that small rewards can equal big motivation. What's worse than having to run 20 miles at 7 in the morning on Saturday? Running 20 miles at 7 in the morning in 14 degrees Fahrenheit. You know what would get me through these brutal long runs in the winter? The thought of holding a warm, tall soy latte between my still thawing hands from the nearby Starbucks when it was all over. I know what you're thinking. How could something so small and trivial propel me through 20 frigid miles? Well, part of it was the fact that it was my ritual. I always got a tall soy latte from Starbucks after a really cold long run. Again, Context matters. Even the rewards you select can serve as cues for your desired response. The point is, your reward, it doesn't need to be this extravagant thing in order to be effective. It doesn't need to be a shopping spree or a vacation to Italy. It just needs to be consistent and pleasurable. Distance, however, does not always make the heart grow fonder in this situation. When it comes to reinforcing habit development, the reward cannot be somewhere off in the far-off distance, i.e. the several weeks it will take for you to start seeing concrete health benefits from your new fitness routine. Your reward needs to be immediate. As we discussed earlier, the desired behavior exacts a cost, mental, physical, even financial. For most of us, we like to see what we paid for immediately, not three months from now. One of my favorite post-workout rewards is second breakfast. I usually eat a very small breakfast before a run or workout, unless it's going to take me longer than 60 minutes to complete, in which case I usually eat something heftier. Having that second breakfast, however, to look forward to at the end of my workout, it's not only great for extra motivation, it gives my body much needed nutrition during the first hour after my workout. Now we're going to talk about something a little ugly, the plateau. 
I think we've all been there, right? You start off like so, so strong. You make changes to your diet or activity level that leave you feeling super great. You're running faster, feeling lighter, and boom. All the motivation you've had has dried up and none of the tricks you've used to great success in the past are working anymore. You want to quit. In fact, you pretty much have quit. James Clear, the author of New York Times bestselling book, Atomic Habits, he calls this the plateau of latent potential, the inherent lag between the act you're trying to habituate and the promised results. It's during this valley of disappointment that you are most likely to give up. Now, here are a couple of things that I've done to guard against throwing in the towel when I hit that dreaded plateau. Number one, I track my gains. The great thing about fitness habits is that consistent work always yields measurable results. Always. But by measurable, I don't necessarily mean things that you might see in a mirror like your six-pack abs. I'm talking about performance. And even there, I'm talking about very small gains. One thing that Anthony does to stay motivated is to set mini goals for himself. For example, he'll tell me, I planked for one minute every day this week. Next week, I'm going to see if I can do one minute and 15 seconds. Similarly, I've been doing push-ups three times a week. I started at 12 in one minute. The following week, I pushed myself to 17. Last week, I managed to eke out 22. Now, these are, again, pretty small incremental improvements to performance that some might otherwise take for granted. However, when they're tracked and celebrated, they can become powerful incentives that'll keep you moving forward until you start seeing the kind of life-altering changes that fitness promises. The other thing I like to do to guard against the plateau is to go slow. The biggest danger of hitting the plateau is hitting it too early. What you want is to hit the plateau, which is pretty much inevitable, with the habit adequately entrenched so you don't need the crutch of immediate results in order to keep going. Habits, they take time to build. How much time? Well, studies have shown that that can vary pretty dramatically from person to person. I've noticed for myself, it takes about three weeks of healthy eating, for example, to develop a moderately sticky habit of eating well, one that I feel confident will withstand travel, holidays, and fatigue. It might take you more or it might even take you less time to develop your healthy habit, but the key is to give yourself as much runway as you can before peaking, which is almost always when you hit your first plateau. Oh yes, there will be more than one. Thus, instead of running every single day, maybe do it only two times a week. Instead of signing up for that 90-minute hit class, do the 15-minute one. Not only will this give you more time to develop that habit, it'll also guard against injury, another byproduct of that initial burst of enthusiasm. Now, given all the benefits of physical activity we've talked about, it should be a no-brainer, right? But sometimes... The biggest hurdle standing in the way of your fitness goals is none other than yourself. Lofty aspirations of running your first 5K or joining the local cycling class can easily fall to the wayside in favor of shuttling the kids to and from dance class again, guaranteeing hot and homemade dinners on the table each night, eking out another 0.8 billable hours at work. 
You justify this by telling yourself, well, the kids aren't going to drive themselves, or homemade meals are important, or 0.8 billable hours equals a lot of money. Some excuses are very compelling, but they are still excuses. Even if you manage to overcome the inertia that keeps you stuck in the status quo, you might bust out a couple of workouts or even a string of them before you run out of steam and conclude, without really thinking about it, that it isn't worth it. That you're not worth it. And you go back to the daily grind, barely noticing the gym's absence and your body's comfortable resignation to a more sedentary and possibly shorter, less happy existence. That's according to science. I say this, all of this, of course, as someone who has lived that life, as someone whose motto used to be, I hate movement of all kind, and I wasn't exaggerating. I avoided the gym as I would a bag of sweaty socks. I took a taxi to the courthouse that was literally five blocks from my office. The pretty pink dumbbells I bought after my physician told me to get into strength training in order to counteract the bone density depleting side effects of my birth control, they collected as much dust as the antiquated DVD player that sat next to them. I am the girl who had a panic attack, fainted, and had to be carted off to the emergency room when I was 10 years old because I discovered we would have to run for 20 minutes in a row during gym class. I'm also the girl who excelled at managing fear and anxiety by giving into fear and anxiety. Daily life became less about finding and breathing in pockets of joy and more about staving off whatever disasters loomed on the horizon, according to said fear and anxiety. As such, life was much more manageable if I could focus all my waking attention on things like billing hours at the office, not getting fired, not getting divorced, avoiding overdraft notices from my bank, maintaining a respectable credit score. There simply wasn't any room for 30 to 45 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise while I kept my life barely afloat. So how did an exercise-hating workaholic turn into a long-distance runner? Well, despite all the effort I put into the above-mentioned tasks, I still got a divorce. And by the time I left behind our three-story townhouse for a small condo in the city, I was 40 pounds heavier and unable to walk up the handful of steps to the front door of my condo building without feeling out of breath. I spent the remainder of that first year billing as many hours as I could to make sure I satisfied the firm's billable hours requirement so that I wouldn't screw myself over the following year, which is when I wanted to make partner. By the time January 2013 rolled around, though, I decided... It's time. Of the things I spent so much of my life worrying over, one of them, my marriage, was simply no longer on the list. The other, billable hours, was firmly in hand. I'd met my billable hours goal with two weeks to spare before the beginning of another fiscal year. Accordingly, I had just enough leftover mental bandwidth to commit to fitness. It started with a 0.75-mile run, broken up into two parts, along the Chicago lakefront path, followed by a makeover in my kitchen. I threw out all the salty snacks and sugary drinks and replaced them with crudite and fruit. I purchased a set of Tupperware that resembled lunch boxes and packed five of them at a time with lean protein, kale salads, and roasted sweet potatoes. 
when I didn't feel like running, I started doing P90 videos in my living room. No, not P90X, the version for already semi-fit gym bros like my then financial advisor who claimed that Tony Horton got him into the best shape of his middle-aged life, but just P90, the version for cheerful-looking senior citizens with clouds of white hair clad in pastel-colored sweatpants and curling two-pound pretty pink dumbbells, just like the ones that sported a permanent film of dust in my living room. When Tony Horton grew as tolerable as fingernails on a chalkboard, I graduated from P90 to Turbo Fire. The instructor, Shailene, yeah, she could be a little bit annoying, her almost toxic fitness influencer-laden positivity goading us to jump higher, but it made the minutes between just got out of bed to got my workout done for the day go so much faster than anything else. Inevitably, I started feeling better about myself physically and mentally. Don't get me wrong, I still hated physical movement of any kind, but I hated it less than I loved the feeling of accomplishment after each workout. I hated it less than I loved the way my body was changing. I hated it less than I loved knowing that I was doing something good for myself. Eventually, my short 0.75-mile runs along the lake turned into four-mile long runs to the lighthouse on North Avenue, which then turned into 5K turkey trots, the Soldier Field 10-miler, the Naperville Half Marathon, and eventually the Chicago Marathon. In all that time, I discovered that I never ever needed to love running as some claim they do. I just needed to believe that all the inconvenience, the time suck, the calluses, the mind-numbing boredom, the stress, even the shin splints, I was worth it. I was worth all of it.